Hello, everybody, and welcome to our brand new Bible study on the book of Job. By popular request, for one reason or another, whenever people request a Bible study from me or a series, they say, I want you to, oh, pick this book. And it just so happens to be one of the hardest books ever. We just are, we're still going through the Hebrews Bible study series. We just finished an entire year in Job, and I'm pretty sure after we're done with Hebrews or Job, somebody's going to ask for Revelation or Ecclesiastes. But we are here to serve you, so that is what we are going to do. A couple notes for those listening on SoundCloud. We are live recording this via live stream on Telegram. After each of these lectures that end up on SoundCloud, there is a Q&A section. If you want to have some fellowship time with other people, please ask me. Email me at very underscore Lutheran at tutanota.com and I can send you a link to the Telegram channel where you can join us in some fellowship questions. And if you've always had something you wanted to ask about the book of Job, that'll be the place to get that. Now that said, if everybody has a Bible handy, I would love it if you opened it up to the book of James. We're going to go to the book of James chapter 5, which is going to be what I would like to call a controlling interpretive passage. All throughout Holy Scripture, we can find parts of the Bible that teach us how to interpret the Bible. They will tell you what a certain passage means. As Martin Luther famously said, we interpret scripture with scripture. We cannot, as sola scriptura Lutherans, say, I have tradition to appeal to. Although tradition, the church fathers, maybe they have some good ideas and some good practices, they're not inspired the same way Holy Scripture is. And maybe we have great intellects, but we cannot add our reason to Scripture. Or else suddenly we find ourselves making up all sorts of weird things with our smarty-pants ways. So instead, we're going to go to the book of James and see what St. James has to say about Job. Starting in verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Let's hone in on that 11th verse. St. James here tells us the purpose of the Lord. That is his entire point. What is the point and main message of the book of Job? What is the main thrust of everything that the 42 chapters of Job are about? It is this, that the Lord is compassionate and 
merciful. And as we turn to Job chapter 1, we are going to find out just how counterintuitive of a statement that is. Let's go ahead and turn to the book of Job chapter 1. We will be returning again and again throughout this series to James chapter 5 verse 11 to remind ourselves, here is what scripture says this book is about. But when we get to Job chapter 1, we're going to find it very hard to accept that that's the message. A little bit of background about Job from the first verse of chapter 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Right off the bat, we know two things. One, Job was not an Israelite. He was likely not even a Hebrew. There is estimations and guesstimations of where the land of Uz is. Uz. Where is it? Potentially Aramea or modern day Syria by Damascus. We also might say that it could be further to the southeast. It is understood that Job, as a historical figure, was likely a contemporary of Abraham. And where in the world during Abraham's day were the centers of worship for the true God? They were near Canaan. We know of uh, King Melchizedek, who was in Salem at the time Abraham was going to war against the king of Sodom, uh, trying to rescue Lot. Uh, Melchizedek in Salem, which is modern-day Jerusalem, was there worshiping the true God, even though he was not a Hebrew, was not an Israelite. We also understand that 700 years after Abraham died, we have, in Moses' lifetime, we have Ruel the Midian, Moses' father-in-law, who also worshipped the Lord. So it wasn't unheard of for people outside the line of Israel at this time, and potentially outside the line of Seth himself, or Shem, to be there worshiping the true God. Job is one such a man. We know that much. And he is, in all likelihood, the man who wrote this book. Scholars will tell you that, well, that's unlikely because the Hebrew wasn't uh, primitive. If Job was a contemporary of Abraham, then we would expect a simpler Hebrew. We would expect it to be a Paleo-Hebrew that isn't courtly. But the language here in the book of Job has a courtly, poetic way of writing, suggesting a later era, more like the Solomonic era, since this comes shortly in your Bibles before the book of Proverbs. The understanding, according to modern-day scholars, is one of Solomon's scribes, or maybe even Solomon himself, wrote Job. I disagree. Job speaks of details in his life that it would be hard to justify this as Bible if they are made up. If this is just some drama or a thought exercise for the sake of wisdom, then that's great, I guess, but it wouldn't be Bible. 
it wouldn't be written by a prophet as St. James has implied in James chapter 5. Turning back there very briefly, he says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have heard, seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Job is mentioned in the same breath as the prophets, which implies at the very least, if not stating directly, that Job is considered among the number of the prophets. In the same way Abraham is called a prophet. Second, regarding the language of Job, yes, translated into Hebrew, it sounds courtly. It sounds advanced. It sounds like it's more difficult Hebrew than perhaps Abraham was speaking at that time. But Job was not a Hebrew. In all likelihood, he did not speak Hebrew. And as a well-to-do man, as a rich man, as we will see as we begin reading further into chapter 1, he is also probably intelligent. Intelligent enough to write poetry or pass along a verbal tradition of his life, an oral tradition that gives us the book of Job. So I hold very certainly, I am very certain that he was the author he was not a Hebrew, but he was, in all likelihood, a prophet. So with that said, let's start by reading verses 1 through 5 of chapter 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. A few things we need to note from these first verses. One, it is counterintuitive especially for Lutherans. For anybody who is catechized reading Romans chapter 3, uh, there are none who have not sinned, right? There's nobody that's perfect. There's none who is righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But knowing that this is inspired scripture, the Holy Spirit puts his stamp of approval on every single word in this book saying this is true. When God says to you that Job was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil, we need to believe it. This is somebody who by all means 
should be called Saint Job. Somebody who, in his personal rigor and piety, did everything in his power to extirpate evil and sin within himself. And it is also the case that he did what was right to the best of his ability every single day. And so much so with an agape love that was foreign to the non-Hebrew populations at the time. Oh yes, Melchizedek was somewhere out there in Canaan uh, having his church services, bringing bread and wine to men like Abraham in a proto-communion. But in Uz, where probably everybody around him was some flavor of pagan, Job stands out as Saint Job. This is a man whom God says is righteous. And I understand immediately our Lutheran ears perk up and we want to say, oh, 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 excuse me. No, no. Job was righteous by faith because that's the only kind of righteousness we Lutherans understand, right? Well, not quite. There are two kinds of righteousness. Righteousness coram Deo, which Job certainly had by faith, we will see. That is the only way you're righteous before God, by faith. But also Coramundo, that kind of righteousness, facing the world, Job loved his neighbors, turned away from sin, and did what was right in God's eyes. He is an unqualified case of a righteous man on earth. A hero of the faith, if there ever was one. We need to accept this right off the bat. This is what the Holy Spirit tells us plainly. We also know that Job was well-to-do and he was rich. He is the picture of success for the ancient Near East. If anybody has been around sheep, if they have bought a single sheep, they can tell you they are not cheap. Imagine having 7,000 of them, plus 3,000 camels, oxen, donkeys, and servants in his employ to work on this livestock. This is a man that if we, if we were to dare to call him a Bedouin, would have been the cream of the crop, a competitor, a rich competitor to Father Abraham. But also he had seven sons and three daughters, meaning he was fertile, he did not have the tragedies of many miscarriages of children that died in their young age. He did not have any cases of SIDS that we understand. None of that is mentioned. To the contrary, he has his cake and he eats it too. He has his children, his riches, and he understands that all of these blessings come from God. Now, he does love his children enough to permit them to go to these feasts, to hold a feast every single day. In context, in the ancient world, to have a feast where you ate meat was oftentimes a rare occurrence. It was the Levitical priesthood who would come later on that were eating meat just about every day as they shared in the meat of the burnt offerings. But if you understand that your sheep is your money, your cattle is how you make your bread, how you earn your living, you're going to pause before set like burning a goat, before cooking a barbecue up. Job, though, 
is incredibly generous to his children. He spoils them rotten with a feast every single day. And of course, because he understands that these can be occasions for sin, he insists on consecrating his children, effectively a form of absolution on the off chance that any of them sinned. And he would offer burnt offerings, personal sacrifice, these are burnt offerings of his sheep or his donkeys or his oxen. Whatever God would permit him to sacrifice, he would do that just in case one of his children blasphemed after a night of drinking. This is a picture of righteousness and a righteous man who has been blessed. And of course, I'm sure we are all familiar with what happens to Job. Let us continue reading. Verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now let's go back to verse 6 for a moment. When it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. We can ascertain this means angels. The New Testament, especially the book of Jude and the book of Second Peter, they make references to those angels who left their station and refers basically to the Nephilim, where angels in rebellion against God decided to go out, have relationships with women, have illegitimate mutant children, and suddenly... Boom, we have terrible giants called the Nephilim. And in Genesis chapter 6, we have that same phrase, sons of God, being used for those angels. This is not capital S, sons of God. This is not the only begotten, eternally generated son of God that is Christ, the Logos, the second person of the Trinity. This is a term for the band of angels, all of the angels that exist. And for one reason or another, Satan, which means the adversary or the accuser, he is permitted to stand before God. Probably because God knows exactly what Satan is going to do. He knows that this book, Job, is going to be written. Something important has to happen here. He permits Satan into his presence just this one time, perhaps. He's been banned from the throne room of God. He's been cast out of heaven. 
But here he is now, and according to the name given to him, Ha-Satan, the accuser, what is the very first thing the devil says? After a little bit of catch-up, where he simply says he's been wandering and wandering to and fro from the earth, well, the first thing he does is he accuses God. Satan tries to present a moral case. He answered the Lord concerning Job, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. This is not a cosmic bet. There has been the accusation leveled by various scholars that the book of Job is all about some crapshoot, throw the dice, see if we come up snake eyes or not, bet between God and the devil. That is not what is happening. Satan means accuser. Satan, as some sort of imagined or self-proclaimed prosecutor, has decided he is going to make a case against God himself. Understanding that the Bible teaches us the devil has wanted to be God, to be in charge of the entire universe these thousands of years, perhaps he makes this accusation in the hope that he can find some impurity of, from God, and then from there say, you must abdicate your throne and allow me to sit on it. A similar motivation, might I add, with the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. Satan is the accuser, and here he is, boldly saying to God, You bribed Job. Oh, you want to say, look at my followers. You want to boast in these people that are so faithful to you, but you've just bribed him. I don't care what you say about the man's faith. You've blessed his socks off. There's nothing really there. there. He doesn't trust in you. He just understands that his stomach is full. Later on, our Lord Christ will level just about the same accusation at people in John chapter 6. You don't believe me because I'm Jesus. You believe me because you ate the fish and your bellies were filled. So the devil, well, of course, we understand he's mistaken. We'll get to that. He doesn't speak from inexperience. He's not making this charge up or just throwing out a slanderous lie. He is saying that he's seen this sort of thing before. At least I, we can speculate that. There are many people out there who do only believe in God because they believe God brings them their paycheck. That he brings them their food and their shelter and there's no other reason for them to believe in God. But the moment persecutions arise, the moment pain happens in their life, they drop God like a, like a hot potato. And they say, oh, forget this God. He's not worth it. I'm, my belly isn't full. My bank account's empty. I'm living in a cardboard shack, or it feels that way. Uh, therefore, yeah, no, I'm, I'm going to go, I don't know, Buddhism or something, or atheism. That's how there are real people like that. And they have existed for thousands of years. Satan says to our God, yeah, you just bribed this guy. 
He's not really going to believe in you. He's like all those other people. And God says, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Uh, don't touch him. Don't harm him. But make your point. I'm going to show you something. It's not a bet. Showing. So we read on. Verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Going back to verse 13, when it says, Now there was a day. It's telling us this is a day like any other in Job's life. His sons and his daughters are feasting as they did every day, enjoying their father who loved them so much he was willing to spoil them rotten. But then, a messenger comes to Job. The oxen have died. Well, not quite died. The servants died. The cattle have been stolen. The Sabians fell upon them. Now, who are the Sabians? Uh, first and foremost, we shouldn't care. It's some group of raiders. But they did probably come from southern Arabia. They were traders for the most part. They like to trade in various goods and spices. But they noticed this rich man, Job, and something tells them, you can go ahead. You can enjoy this man's stuff. So they take all of his cattle, and they kill his servants. But then, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep. So, it's not just the donkeys and the oxen now that are dying. No, now there's a scary element to this. This is what clues Job in to know that God has something to do with this because his fire comes down from heaven and kills his thousands of sheep. But it also kills the servants, people he knew, people he worked with. He's losing more than just money, his money-making cattle. He's losing more than that. He's also losing colleagues, people who worked for him, people that he may have considered to be friends since he was righteous. We understand he didn't mistreat these people. He loved them with agape love. Now they're gone. 
real death in the family. As if that was not enough, while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. Who are the Chaldeans? They are the forerunners, the precursors to the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Babylon showed up twice in history. There was the original Babylonian Empire, which fell, leading the Chaldeans who uh, populated that empire to become nomadic raiding people. Later on, they would get together, go back to Babylon, and start all over again for Neo-Babylon, where we have uh, them taking Judah into exile later on. But that's uh, close to 1,600 years in the future from Job's standpoint. Right now, they're just raiders. They come in, just like the Sabians, and they're more tactical. They form groups, raid the camels, take them, kill the servants, and they leave one to live to tell the story. So now Job has no money. He has nothing to his name now that all of his way of life has been destroyed. And that's not it. Now all of his uh, servants that he cared for, they are dead. And finally, the final blow that day, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Losing your children. Now you have nothing left. Job could have comforted himself, saying, Oh, we lost all the cattle and my servants, but I'm going to be able to make it up to my servants' families. I can pick up the pieces. I have my kids. My children are here with me. We can start over the way we did all those years ago as a family. At least we have each other. In a moment, they're gone. He's got nothing. He has no one. Not even his wife, as we'll cover next week. He has not a single thing going for him at this point. But Job's response is not to do what Satan predicted. Satan was wrong. Job arose. He tore his robe and shaved his head. Signs of mourning. He falls on the ground he is clearly broken down and full of sorrow, but he worships. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. Uh, by naked, of course, not only having no clothing, but no possessions. Naked in that day was a sign of poverty. That is why St. James tells us, if you see your brother naked, and you don't clothe him. Our Lord Christ says, if you see your brother naked and you don't clothe him. This is a theme even in first century Judea. Nakedness is poverty. Having nothing. And Job says, the Lord gave. And the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We note that piously and wonderfully, Job continues to worship God. 
We say that to comfort ourselves because of the scandal of the next verse, the last verse in the chapter that everybody likes to ignore. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. The blame for this event is not laid at the feet of Satan. God could have told him no. To the contrary, in the second chapter, a little bit of a preview for next week, the Lord says to Satan in the third verse, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. That is not to say God did not have his reasons for permitting this to happen, but it is senseless destruction of a righteous man's property, senseless murder of his servants and even his children. A deal of heartbreak so sudden and so painful in the scriptures say that Job did not sin when he attributes it to God, saying, God took it away. We need to understand this, yes, as a scandal, because our flesh rages against the thought that God would ever permit or inflict suffering on us, his believers. Maybe we could understand dirty, rotten, filthy, stinking sinners being inflicted with something. We can understand somebody who certainly deserves it that we really don't like, but we're good people, right? Uh, maybe, maybe we admit we're dirty, rotten, stinking, filthy sinners ourselves, but, but we love God and we're trying. So, of course, this shouldn't happen to us. And even if we have a past and we say, no, no, I deserve my suffering, Job didn't. The Bible says it very plainly, he did not deserve this. Even if he has sinned in the past, here he is obsessively, meticulously turning away from evil and doing what is good, to the point of rising up at the butt crack of dawn to make sacrifices to consecrate his children. And if he's doing that for his kids, what does that tell you about him? It tells you, like the scriptures say in the very first verse, that this man was blameless and here he is suffering by God's hand. The second thing we should recognize, though, even though the Bible does not sugarcoat that God ultimately permitted this to happen and even made it happen by allowing Satan to do what he did, we must keep in mind James chapter 5, verse 11. You have heard the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. What is the point of God permitting this evil and disaster in Job's life? He is compassionate and he is merciful. Allow this. This is the final boss of understanding the Bible. It's the final boss of theology, to be frank. It's going to take a long time to fully show the acceptance of the book of Job. 
but I want that tension to stay in your mind until next week. Allow yourself to feel the tension of God causing a man to suffer senselessly, a good and righteous man to suffer senselessly because God is compassionate. We are going to get into more details next week with a little bit shorter of a recording. For everybody listening on SoundCloud, please again, send me an email so I can send you a link to these live streams if you have any questions or if you want to yell at me. The tension from reading Job causes many, many, many people to get upset. But we will get into more detail and more of why God is compassionate and merciful next week. And we will catch you all then. Amen and amen.